You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Mark Christian Thompson, Krieger Eisenhower Professor in the Department of English at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. He is the author of five books, Black Fascisms, published in 2007 by University of Virginia Press, Kafka's Blues, out with Northwestern University Press in 2016, 2018's Anti-Music, Jazz and Racial Blackness in German Thought Between the Wars, published by SUNY Press, Phenomenal Blackness, which is our occasion for discussion today, appeared in late 2021 with the University of Chicago Press. And he is also the author of forthcoming Critique of Nonviolence, Martin Luther King Jr. and Philosophy. Mark, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Um, I'm really excited to to talk about this new book of yours. Um, I've read your previous work and really uh, love it. It's you. You have really such an important and really unique in terms of of, of theoretical scholarship, or, or really unique sort of sort of framing for the figures that you read and the kinds of figures that you engage and. Um, I think this this new book is such a an example of that, um, and part of what I want to get into is 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 why these thinkers, German critical theory, post World War II, African American uh, political and and uh, literary figures. But I, you know, want to start with a question that's really open ended, and as much as anything, an invitation for you to to narrate us into the process of of this book you know what drew you to the project you know were there questions or concerns in your previous work that you feel were unsettled um things that needed to be said about you know critical theory about the figures in each chapter Uh, and i mean this in terms of you know any kind of personal reflection and um you know what kind of intellectual curiosities made this project happen for you? Well, my commitment to and investments in African-American literary studies and theory and philosophy and German literary studies, theory and philosophy had been moving, I wouldn't say parallel because they intersect in the previous books, but they hadn't really overlapped yet to the to the extent to which I I felt they could and, and really sort of needed them to at, at this point in, in my thinking. And so uh, part of that was part of the choice for looking at writers from the 60s and early 70s was this. This was a consideration because this is where this actually starts to happen uh, quite overtly. Uh, a larger concern, though, was really what's the, the critical landscape in African-American studies and Black studies more generally today. Um, mm-hmm. And thinking about the extent to which uh, a type of aestheticized theory had has really sort of taken hold uh, in many ways in some quarters as du jour and how we go about looking at and thinking about Blackness and, and uh, in African-American literature. And I, I started to ask myself, well, how, how did this come about? How, how is it that um, criticism and, and poetics have merged in a way in African-American literary studies uh, to, to almost to the exclusion, at least in, in, our, in our highest profile uh, writers and books, to the exclusion of a much more historicized way of approaching the field uh, which had been sort of standard uh, previously, but in the past 15 years or so, slowly started to shift to where we are now. And I really wanted to sort of historicize the present. How, why are we here? How did we get here? And saw that that started to to happen or became possible um, in the early 1960s and primarily with uh, Baraka's work at that time, Leroy Jones. Mm-hmm. 
So what is it that for you, this shift in period, it's just a few decades, right? But your previous work is so much about the between the wars, right? And shifting that few, those few decades into the, to the 1960s and, and 1970s, you know, what is, you, you spoke to it a little bit there, um, but I wonder, you know, uh, just to ask again, you know, what that shift forward opens up for you in terms of, you know, why this new period, right? I mean, on the one hand, maybe you feel exhausted by the, the, uh, the, the between the wars period, but also that, you know, of course it's a, you know, post Richard Wright is just a different world for African-American uh, literary and cultural productions or post-war. Um, but what for you opens up in those decades, those those first few after the second world war so what i started to i sort of i was following the the trajectory of the of the intellectuals and the writers and the thinkers themselves to a certain extent and trying to understand what happens what i saw was that after the war really during it but but definitely by the late 50s a real shift had taken place a methodological shift had taken place and an epistemological shift had taken place away from a, a much more rigorous sociological approach mm-hmm. to reflections on African-American culture uh, and politics mm-hmm. to something that started to incorporate critical theory and philosophy. And by philosophy, I don't mean political philosophy, but so-called first philosophy or metaphysics. Uh-huh. where metaphysical reflection on African-American life really only took place in, in theological settings before, before this. It's something that, of course, um, one could find in Du Bois, but it's always tempered by this very clear sociological vision that he has. Mm-hmm. But in Baraka's work, um, and in Blues People in particular, we start to see someone who's calling for a much more ontological approach to race mm. and races. What is race and what is, what role does it play in African-American life? What does it mean to be not just black, but African-American and how does that relate as a form of being? Um, this question intrigued me and I started to wonder to what extent ontological reflections on race and blackness not just play a part in but actually shape debates in black power and uh Mm. in the king book later civil rights during this period and into the 70s yeah that's it's i i mean that's one of the things i really loved about the book is is thinking about that shift um this very shift you know my own sort of framing of it or my own characterization of it was really indebted has always been really indebted to Ellison's the the world and the jug that where he characterizes Wright's you know native son and Wright's fiction generally as sociological and sort of opens up this art for art's sake or an indulgence in the depth of African American culture. But as you just put it, I mean the book really brings out, you know, what it would mean to say culture, right? Life. Mm-hmm you know, sort of rich sense of existential history in terms of ontology, in terms of metaphysics, in terms of epistemology. And I, that, that way of, um, I don't want to say elevating because I, I do think, you know, these things are sort of horizontal relations, but mm-hmm. opening up this really complicated theoretical horizon that philosophy offers um, to, to give a different um, shape to and contour to that critique of, of literature as sociology to start to talk about it in terms of ontology. And as you say, detect it or, 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 or chart it through uh, political movements where it's not just, here's a philosophical take on the moment, but no, this philosophical turn is, is transforming um, mm. the way social movements are thinking about themselves. Right. The um, something in the book really doesn't get into too much, but the the forthcoming King book does um, would be, for instance, uh, I'll say two things here. One one is related to Huey P. Newton, who essentially taught himself to read 
reading Plato's Republic and would and would lecture on the Republic quite often and made explicit references to the allegory of the cave as a form of uh, black consciousness and uh, white ideology, racist ideology. Um, so there you have just at the very heart of the Black Panther movement, Plato, right? We just, these are some of the things that I was fascinated. How does this work? What does it do? How does this activate mm -hmm. social movements and play out in the street or in the penitentiary or in the courthouse? Um, something that I looked at in Phenomenal Blackness was, of course, Angela Davis's own um, intellectual trajectory and the time she spent uh, at Frankfurt as actually a, a member of the Frankfurt School, in a sense, she's studying there with Adorno. Adorno is her direct advisor. And again, these questions arise, what, what happens? What does that mean that for Angela Davis, her formative philosophical training is done with Herbert Marcuse or Teodoro Adorno with the Frankfurt School, at the Frankfurt School, taking classes with Habermas and so on? It's got to be there still. It's clear in her lectures mm -hmm. on liberation from UCLA, yeah. 69, 70. And does it have a, an afterlife? Did it inform anybody else in the period? What were they reading or thinking about or who were they listening to? And how did that mm -hmm. actually go into um, shaping and creating uh, black, black power thought uh, mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. civil rights thought? And I think that remark on Newton, um, you know, and you could, you know, as you did, as you started to there, um, sort of write it, write it out large, somebody like Newton thought in terms of, you know, I think is often remembered in terms of photographs and sound bites and militancy, but this dimension of him as an intellectual, you know, as you say, Plato's Republic, or I'm also thinking about, he's talked about how much he thought about Descartes when he was in solitary confinement. Hmm. Mm -hmm. which is just kind of a wild thing, you know, <laughs> to the way people were writing about their incarceration in the moment was very much not like, you know, I was thinking of Descartes, but rather than <laughs> about, you know, how did, you know, comparative, you know, carceral reports, that idea of this intense intellectual dimension at the heart of, of figures largely remembered for their activism or sort of iconic character, um, mm -hmm. You know, I think the the book does that. You know, in with Davis certainly uh, and Baraka as well, uh, so well. But I wanted to, you know, you, you we're talking about the Frankfurt School, and I wanted to back up, maybe um, or not back up, but isolate that question uh, for a moment and ask you, you know, and this is of course part of your your intellectual uh, work prior, your your book writing prior. So it's clearly a part of your your trajectory as a as an intellectual. Uh, what is it about German critical theory, which in this book, you know, Adorno and Marcuse are, are centerpieces, but you also talk about Jürgen Habermas. You know, what is it about German critical theory that makes it such such a compelling interpretive frame? You know, what do you think that you're able to draw out of the material? You know, the African American uh, literary and, and and political figures through that frame that we wouldn't otherwise see. And I ask that because, of course, that's the way theory functions, right? Theory is not just a sort of uh, boutique concern. It's a way of seeing something about a text, right? The text of the world, a written text, a figure's life that we wouldn't be able to see without that theory, without that interpretive frame. You know, what is it about, about German critical theory that, that is so compelling for you? So um, a few things. Uh, the book I'm working on now goes back to uh, the late 18th century and runs through the 19th century to kind of come up to that Garveyite moment and, and complete the circuit of what, I, what I'm thinking or what I've been thinking about for many years uh, to try to show how African-American intellectuals and philosophers have thought about mm -hmm. racism as a metaphysical property and how that continues to inform how we think about it. And the German tradition, of course, looms large during the earlier period as well, largely because um, at least through the 20th century to the 60s or so, the, the French tradition um, or any other European tradition that they could have um, fallen back on modern tradition 
contemporary tradition um, didn't didn't provide a, a platform or an intellectual structure, philosophical structure to to raise these types of metaphysical questions about race. Um, they were more more pragmatic in their concerns, and, and indeed the, the dominant form of French philosophy, at least for the first half of uh, Tessacher, is a philosophy of science that just didn't have the kind of traction um, for African-American philosophers who were trying to think about and push back on theologically and metaphysically informed conceptions of race and exclusion mm-hmm. and racial exclusion. Um, and so for this reason, the German tradition works quite, quite well because that's exactly what it did. It, it formulated some of the most basic philosophical forms of race and racial exclusion um, that, that we still are living with. But critical theory itself pushes back on this and its own tradition, its own intellectual mm-hmm. tradition. It provides a mode of reading that one can insert and use into the philosophical text so that for African American the, the the benefit is is that you can go into something like Hegel um, and still take parts of of Hegel's metaphysics mm-hmm. but then invert it and deconstruct it if I, if I dare use that term before the fact of deconstruction itself or in a different way that is less uh, collusive with uh, the the Western tradition in general. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. critical theory, I would say African-Americans are using critical theory, but they're also um, pushing back or using critical theory to invert itself at times in order to produce something that is both critique and the production of, uh, of a metaphysics of race that uh, is there in these 60s texts. Yeah, so picking up on the other side of that, of the of the figures at work in, in Phenomenal Blackness, um, you know, you take the, the book is structured around, spe- chapters are structured around specific figures, you know, Baldwin, Malcolm X, Ralph Ellison, Amiri Baraka, Angela Davis, Eldridge Cleaver. Um, and what I really like about that is it allows you to, you know, just as a scholar reading, it allows you to really treat in detail, right? Rather than sort of broad characterizations of the period or certain movements or geographies. Um, so there's like such depth in in those chapters that are both, you know, you learn a lot about James Baldwin, but you also learn a lot about what you're talking about in terms of, you know, you know, dialectics, critical theory and, and so forth. But I'm curious on the in, in the African American side, in some ways, asking the same question I just asked about German critical theory. You know, why why these figures? I mean, they come from a similar period, right? You know, expanded period, the '60s and '70s. But they have such different cultural and political sensibilities. You know, Ralph Ellison and and Miri Baraka and Malcolm X uh, put together, not to mention Cleaver and Baldwin and all of that. Um, but what draws their attention, their your attention to them under the conceptual rubric of the book? You know, do you feel like the book was sort of sort of generated through the frame of German critical theory and where it attached to figures, or is there something about this collection of figures that you you think is an important portrait to draw about the post-war period of African American literature and culture? So I think that there's, uh, it's a little bit of both, but it's, I think it's more the latter, that there is something important about this, this collection of figures. And if I can try and trace that trajectory, um, it would be in the form of a development or an historical development or movement that takes place where a thought starts to grow and to flesh itself out beginning with Baldwin, um, who acts as a bridge figure between um, the the more sociological um, approach of previous generation, Richard Wright, um, and Ralph Ellison's Ralph Ellison, who's already sort of tearing with the metaphysical, but who's also still kind of firmly embedded in uh, 
anthropological discourse that he, he's in, strongly invested in. Um, to Baldwin, who's moving away from this and is start, starting to think of um, hermeneutical method and and language in a different in a different way that that is more um, philosophy based than it is necessarily mm -hmm. a, a, a pure exercise in linguistics or sociological linguistics or anything of that that nature. Uh -huh. um, the movement or the progression then moves to uh, Baraka, who sort of picks up on it's not necessarily linked to a direct reaction to Baldwin, but I'm seeing a kind of general sort of movement that one experiences as a zeitgeist or however you, you wish to frame it. Mm -hmm. But Baraka in the early 60s, who sort of completes that transition that Baldwin begins or is the bridge figure for, where he's simply saying, we need a philosophy. We need to just think about this philosophically as opposed to sociologically or anthropologically. Mm -hmm. um, the movement to Malcolm X is, for me, was kind of a logical next step because, uh, of course, Malcolm looms large over the 60s and beyond in any, in any form or articulation of, of Black power that, that we have. But what I was absolutely fascinated by was how paradigmatic his, his experience was, or as he gives it in the autobiography, mm -hmm. but also how strange. Um, and I go back to that prison prison moment where he very offhandedly says, oh, Kant, Nietzsche, I read them all. They're all garbage, basically, but I read them. And I mm -hmm. can speak to that tradition if I, if I want to. And I started to wonder, what is is he? And what we see take place with Malcolm X is that philosophical thought that starts to become oriented toward the public sphere, and mm -hmm. how how this become becomes a practical mode of engagement as opposed to an, an aesthetic practice, um, which happens right right there in that in that moment in prison, mm -hmm. in those prison years. Um, beyond that, I just move again. It starts to move sort of uh, fluidly or, or almost easily to to Cleaver and to Davis because whereas Cleaver is sharing a, a similar uh, penitentiary or carceral experience, what he comes away with is, is a full-blown admission of a certain form of reading of uh, the, the Western philosophical tradition based around Marx and Lenin, which he rejects, um, but not entirely as he starts to grapple with or try to formulate something that's specifically black or African-American at, at mm -hmm. that time, um, ending with Davis, who, who actually does that um, and does that at such a high level of sophistication and with such far reaching consequences that yeah. um, in my, in my mind anyway, she culminates this uh, movement mm -hmm. and ends it because what happens next is there's really no no following act to that. Things change rapidly as yeah. um, philosophy moves into the academy and starts to fracture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's. I'm glad I asked that question. It was a that was a really fascinating sort of weave and and set of connections there especially that remark about Davis sort of ending this trajectory, you know, and, and the, the link to the, you know, the sort of sociological existential experience of the Academy in a certain moment, um, actually transforming this trajectory of, of African-American thought. Um, I think that's just a really compelling thing to sit with. So I, I appreciate that, that comment. Um, so, I mean, you've, you've started to speak to it a little bit in terms of particular figures having to do with, you know, their remarks in, in key texts in terms of their, you know, their life, uh, their life trajectory, you know, Davis studying uh, with Marcuse and also Adorno and this remark of X that you just uh, cited. Um, and so you work it out in the chapters, I think very specifically and, and started to work it out there in, um, in remarks on each figure, but I wonder if this question of influence, right? If you had a, if you zoom out for a moment, if you had a, a sense of, you know, is there a theory of influence uh, 
that you're operating with across the book? Or is it this sort of notion of influence sort of parasitic on the particular figures, you know, drawing from, you know, what does Baldwin do and say, what does Angela Davis do and say, or do you feel like your own, uh, your own role as a reader and interpreter of these figures deploys a sense of, of influence that's worth articulating in a broader sense outside the specific cases in each chapter? That's a, that's a great question. I, so I'll start with the sort of first parts of that and just, try to identify what's going on in, in the, the book itself. I had basically three three modes of three evidentiary modes or mode or theories of influence. Nothing um, I wasn't drawing on any specific theory of influence, but just how or I, I think I'm, I might call it transmission instead. How is this being transmitted from one side mm -hmm. to the other? And the first was just direct transmission. Davis is in Frankfurt studying with Adorno, so it wasn't too hard to draw the. Now uh, there's more to that, but that would involve the second part of the question, which I'll come I'll come to in a, in a second. Um, the second one was um, inferential, and it relied on books that the authors had read or conversations that were recording that we have and that we know that they were mm -hmm. thinking about Cleaver's clearly read Marx, but also Plato, because he uses symposium quite a bit. And I didn't talk about it too much in the book, but it's there. Hmm. Um, and Malcolm X gives a list of what he read and what he rejected and so on. Yeah. And then I sort of assume or hope or think that some of that must have been retained or used in some way. Um, the other, the last part is, of course, purely speculative and has to do with what's happening at the time during these years or had, or during the years in which these thinkers were coming to maturity. And most of the German critical theorists that I mentioned in the book were public intellectuals in the United States. Not all of them, for, for instance, Gadamer wasn't, but Gadamer was quite huge um, by the mid-60s in um theological circles in the United States, not necessarily philosophical circles because uh, Truth and Method hadn't been translated yet, but there were texts circulating and one was expected to have read Truth and Method in German. Mm -hmm. um, and so I certainly believe it's possible and probable that some of these thinkers would have been familiar with Arendt, even though maybe they hadn't read her works or uh, some of the th thinkers would have been familiar with um, Marcuse's work, even though they hadn't studied with him and so on. Mm -hmm. um, now, the second part of that question is just, as I, t as I understand it, a, a more, do I have outside of the sort of, as you said, parasitical moments of what is Baldwin doing? What is, what is Davis doing here? What is X doing here? Of a wider theory of influence, or an an idea of why these true traditions might speak to each other, and what does that what does that mean? It would be as where there was opportunity, there was also need, and there were intellectual needs in order to articulate specific concerns, concerns specific to African American intellectuals and to German intellectuals, mm -hmm. but that. They needed to supplement each other in order to say what needed to be said because the situation had become too complicated by the mid 20th century simply to take the stance that there are, there's this race and that race and never the twain shall meet. Mm -hmm. They simply could not formulate the 20th century as an archive and as a philosophical problem without reference to each other in some way. Mm. And where this is purported to have happened, I generally tend to think, and this would be my own approach, that if you scratch the surface hard enough, you'll tend to find much more going on than a single monological tradition at work moving through any given philosopher, author, etc. My example out of my own work would be the, actually the Kafka book, where certainly Kafka is a the novelty of that for me, aside from just a lifelong love of Kafka, was that I don't think anyone would have thought, well, scratch the service and you'll find 
you'll find some African-American authors or African-American culture in or flowing through Kafka's entire mm -hmm. oeuvre. But in fact, you can and you do. And it's not simply a, a, a whimsy on my part. There's actual textual evidence and historical evidence and biographical evidence that supports mm -hmm. this. Um, but we have to want to go there and we have to want to see that influence and be able to excavate it. And that's pretty much what I've been trying trying to do. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Gautamer and, uh, you know, which uh, I, I've been waiting for a little bit of a Gautamer renaissance at some point that I'm not sure is ever coming. But he, I mean, you know, his uh, his work on the beautiful, um, of course, uh, truth and method. I, I just think it's 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 endlessly relevant, you know, what it gathers to it. But, you know, so much of what you're you're saying gets inside the hermeneutic situation. Right, that we have to be open to how the text speaks to us, right, mm. and speaks to us at multiple levels, right? Its explicit message and also its sort of sideline citations and what those mean, right? And so, what part of being a you know doing hermeneutics, you know, with with integrity is tracing out and chasing down those those small citations, but there's also that the part of the hermeneutic situation of you know we approach the text as readers we approach the text with something in mind and that interplay between um and i have to say just in general you mentioned the kafka book which is fantastic um i remember reading that and being thinking you know in a playful way but i i, I did think I was, could this possibly be possible i mean as you said it's not a it's not something that somebody says oh here's what you'll find when you talk about kafka but um you know, the, I think this phenomenal blackness book, you know, draws us into, right, uh, in a really deliberate and intense way into the hermeneutical situation of your own scholarship, you know, that we're, I think we really see that. And so that question of influence is interesting to me because, you know, what you do is chase down these these side notes, these footnotes, these life moments or illusions or figures, and you trace them out in the text to where they come, you know, where they come from and what those implications would be. Um, but I, I, you know, when what you were saying, uh, both in response to that last question and, and across this conversation is really also, you know, detailing your own frame that you bring to the text which I think is really unique and, and uh, really needed. You know, I, I think it, it breathes phenomenal blackness, certainly breathes a lot of new and different life into canonical African-American literary and political figures. Um, and I like so, that you do that without a sort of, here's a statement about the nature of say Ellison. And instead that the writing draws us into that hermeneutic event of, of your own reading. Yeah. I, I wouldn't um, say that my ultimate goal was novelty, but it certainly certainly is, is part of that uh, in the sense that, and I maybe forecast ahead now to the to the King book a little bit. Uh, we've been thinking about and writing about King for sixty plus years, and it's there's it's not that there's nothing new to say, but I I think that there's still more to say that has never even been thought. I, I just want to go back to these texts and think about how they were made and, and what it took to, to produce these thoughts and to transform them into something that became meaningful for African-American life. Um, where does it come from? And, I, and when I ask that, I don't simply mean one's experience. Where, where does one come from? But where does the thought come from? The thought is not the experience. It's imbricated yeah. in it. And so mm -hmm. there's a tradition there or multiple traditions there that are intertwined. It's a type of intertwining that need to be extricated from each other and looked at in order better to understand not just the thought, but the experience, right? To come mm -hmm. back, always back to the experience and, and what it means and what it could mean. And so taking another look, so to speak, and say, well, uh, what else is there? Because there, there's always more there. The text is infinite. Um, 
I think we we start to start to find something liberating. Uh, even even in a book like Black Black Fascism, the first one, the point really wasn't to upset anybody, <laughs> although perhaps it, it did. I'm but sure. Simply, I'm sure that it did. A, another great, fantastic book, but that yeah. yeah. It was simply to sort of follow Ralph Ellison and in insisting on the on the, the fullness of, of black life and the, the three dimensionality of it, and it that includes its glories, but it also includes its faults and its stumbles. <coughs> yeah. So. So let me ask you about you know um, to to think about this, this exchange that you stage in, in this book, um, especially, um, and, and, you know, I think also the King book, um, but this, uh, you know, in your own writing, but, it, you know, we just focus on, uh, phenomenal blackness or expand however you like, um, ask a question that's really as much about sort of academic politics and ethics as anything, which is, uh, the politics of citation, which is, has become, I think, in the last decade, a really, really fraught space around, you know, what, you know, the, I think a lot of critiques of comparative work, right, about, you know, what it means to bring, in this case, African-American thought and and German critical theory uh, together um, to talk about, you know, lines of influence, frames of interpretation, and so forth. And I know there's a lot of pushback to that. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, in some ways you spoke directly to it, right? That That's just mm. textually and historically uh, not the way intellectual life fo- unfolded. Um, but I did want to ask that sort of politics question, uh, the uh, citation question, and, and get your thoughts on it. And also ask if you think that this sort of work that you do, which is not comparative work, Right. I mean, myself, I, most of my scholarship is is comparative work, but you're doing something very different in terms of citations, um, citational practices. But I wonder if, you know, both, you know, how you think about your own your own book and, and the politics of citation, but also what that might what your own thoughts on that might say about the future of the study of black life, whether it's black studies or Africana studies as a field or just literary and cultural studies around uh, around black life. So a, a quick anecdote, which I, I now have many years on <laughs> told uh, told a, a few times, but I'll tell again very quickly, and that is when I first started out, I was uh, giving a talk based on the Garvey chapter in, in Black Fascism. Very long Q- Q&A ensued. Um, and one of the last questions, someone raises his hand and says, well, you know, I, I, I get what you're saying. I believe what you're saying. It's not a question of, oh, my God, Marcus Garvey was saying that. No, I believe it. My question for you is, why would you say it? And I had, uh, you know, I was not prepared for a direct question. <laughs> so, I mean, my answer was just it's a clarifying. Even, uh, it's a yeah. clarifying question in the sense of like, there's no way to yeah. answer it. <laughs> other and than so directly. I just said, and it's a source of both a source of embarrassment a little bit. I just said spontaneously because it's true. Right, it's true, and I thought that's what we were supposed to be doing. Um, and I still think that's what we're supposed to be doing, wherever wherever that leads. Um, I understand the other side of that much better now than I maybe did uh, 15, 20 years ago. But I still sort of insist on that, that I, if Martin Luther King Jr., in his dissertation is engaging with Heidegger, which he is, or then maybe we should look at that and ask about it, see what it, what it does. Or if Angela Davis studied with um, Herbert Marcuse or Adorno, or maybe we should look at that and ask what it does, because she doesn't back away from that. She still talks about Marcuse and the influence Mm -hmm. that that he had. Or um, if, if, if Malcolm X is saying, yeah, I read Kant, I want to know about it. And maybe that that isn't the most expedient 
political practice within the profession or within the academy, so to speak. But I think it's a useful one. And I think that there we have enough of, of every other type of work that maybe there's room for this as well. Let's let's think about these things. Now the future of of the fields and the discipline at large I think is probably going more in this direction than in the one that would exclude these citational practices. Um, there are probably a lot of reasons for that, which just generally seem to to have to do with how institutions are starting to imagine themselves and their and their pedagogical mission and how they imagine translating that into a sustainable future for the humanities and what they'll need in interdis so-called interdisciplinary work and thought and so on. But so often I look across at um, absolutely amazing scholars um, working it within African-American studies departments or in some cases programs or centers and so on um, clustered there in just what amounts to uh, really uh, something to behold in terms of the, the intellectual breadth of, of what is what they're offering and what they can do as a group on on campus. But then I look at surrounding departments, whatever, whatever they may be, whichever ones within the humanities, social science, where there would seem to be that type of um, presence is maybe not not there. And what I want to, uh, what I hope to to see change in the future is this this type of, um, not, I won't call it isolation, but a type of intellectual closure that might be taking place on on campus itself, where the interplay and interchange of and the sharing of students and ideas might not be um, as fluid as we might like. And I hope that people doing these types of this type of works, citational work, let's call it just as a shorthand, will be able to start to open open that up more. I'm not saying that there aren't openings now, but I think that it needs to be this type of integration needs to take place on campus, where there are multiple appointment people who are able to to have their students interact with students from other areas and other departments in ways that they're not interacting right now mm -hmm. to for a, a much fuller university experience i mean it reminds me just like as a personal anecdote of uh teaching a class on race and the enlightenment and um having a bunch of philosophy majors i was in a black studies department and a bunch of philosophy majors in the course and then getting complaints but also a lot of energy, which I think, you know, complaints aren't always a bad thing from philosophy department professors who were saying, I can't teach Hume, I can't teach Hegel and Kant without these questions about colonialism and the concept of race and its relation to ethics and epistemology. And it's, you know, it bled over in, in ways that were difficult. But um, I mean, I really like the way you put that in terms of, 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 of breaking through some of those those silos and senses of social, but also epistemological isolation that that happen in campus intellectual life. Yeah, some of the pushback that um, that one can get can be can be interesting uh, from colleagues in the same department, other departments, where you start to introduce this element into a, a discipline that maybe isn't quite used to having to talk about these and isn't really yeah. always prepared to have these conversations with students who are now very curious. The thing is the students are coming with these questions anyway, and mm -hmm. it's time to just a department, let's say a German department, for instance, needs to be able to have them <laughs> yeah. one way or, or another. Um, you, we can't just go behind a wall and, and start saying, but what about, uh, but I, it's none of that, that doesn't apply to me. Yeah. It might not apply to your scholarship, but it applies to your, your discipline. And yeah. increasingly students are coming in with a lot of questions that we have to be ready or ready to answer or to be able to refer them to someone who can, or yeah. at least to have these dialogues. 
Um, and I think that that's the that benefit of these types of citational practices. It also reminds me in terms of some of the, um, you know, and this is as much as just an sort of associative thing for me, but in what you were saying ar- around these citational practices, it did resonate with, you know, something uh, Derek Walcott said when he was asked about, you know, his his sort of theoretical embrace in his essays, uh, but also in his poetry of, of Caribbean vernacular culture. And he was asked, well, why do you write in English, right? Why don't you write in a, in a Creole or Patois of, of St. Lucia or, you know, you know, sort of command this for other Caribbean poets? And he said a lot of things, but one of the things he said that really stood out for me in response to that problem was, you know, he, he said, I just don't believe that English is a language that's a property of the English, right? It's a global language now. And once it's a global language, I can do with it what I want. It was interesting for me, a kind of decolonial move around saying, mm-hmm. you know, we don't have anything to fear from these ideas because they're not actually the possession of empire that they were what they once were. And, you know, I saw at a, at a, you know, very philosophical level in your works, this phenomenal blackness, but also previous works, um, a really philosophical, you know, metaphysical, ontological, and epistemological way of doing a similar thing of, you know, there's nothing to, in this case, there's nothing to fear if you're writing on African-American figures about German critical theory, right? Because part of the force of these intellectuals, I mean, because you don't, you know, I mentioned the names, you know, Baldwin, Malcolm X, and so forth. These are these are massive, you know, paradigm shifting writers, and so the space for exchange is uh, in ci- different citational practices is actually uh, something we ought to run towards. I mean, this is my own sort of uh, pontification here, but we ought to run toward because there's there's nothing to fear, and um, you know that that sort of force of empire is kind of gone and i think you're right in what you were saying about german critical theory it's it itself is working against any of those kind of imperial deployments uh, i think probably partly the biography of you know german jews i mean what are they going to do defend german imperial ambitions i mean of course not right so there's something in the theory that sort of dis- disassembles that but also, I think from the African American intellectual tradition, it's it's like Walcott in English. It's it's a part of the world now. Uh, to, a, to a more speculative association, but to associate Malcolm X with Habermas and thinking about the public sphere doesn't diminish Malcolm X's work or achievement in any way. And to to ask why wouldn't I could have turned that, that question, the Garvey lecture question around and simply said, why wouldn't I do it? Because then we force an articulation of a certain notion of diminishment. Like, so if you do this, does this mean somehow, if you've uh, pointed to Angela Davis's um, debt to Marcuse, let's say, and does this mean that we, she's not some type of, organic intellectual who's articulating um, a form of blackness. And the moment we do that, we're back into the very, to the very thing that we've been trying to avoid and something that I was criticized for bringing up in Phenomenal Blackness, which is a, a type of essentialism, right? What are we expecting? How, how could Angela Davis be anything but a an amalgam of different intellectual traditions. How would that work otherwise? Where would she have, how would she have formulated any of these ideas and where would she have been able to say, articulate, to say them and be understood? Yeah. This notion of that type of public sphere, which Malcolm X is thinking about, which he did understand is monological, um, forecloses on, on, on any type of, non-citation reading right there always has to be some dialogue going on somewhere because otherwise the two sides can't understand each other at all um only sort of remotely and at a distance and as if through a a glass darkly so uh, i just don't really see the point in avoiding citation and then it becomes a a critic's choice right decide how you want to frame that and what your goal is and then do that Mm -hmm. 
I like that. That's a fa- I really like that. That's a fantastic take. I'm glad you, I'm glad you, what did you call it? A, a speculative association. I, I like that a lot. Let me, um, let me ask you about this sentence at the end of the book. I know it's probably strange. I mean, it would be strange for me to have a sentence I wrote read back to me, but I love this sentence and I mused over it uh, myself for a long, long time. And so I wanted to read it and ask you uh, just to unpack it a little bit or reflect on it, because it seems to me to bring, I mean, it is by its own declaration uh, to bring together the thematic trajectory of the book in really important ways. And you say, um, so uh, this is the quotation, you write, the end of theory in African-American literary criticism has become the impossible reconciliation, great phrase, impossible reconciliation of Leroy Jones's aesthetic universalism with blues particularism amid the ruins of ontology. So that universalism Particularism and the ruins of ontology. It's a fantastic sentence. So it, yes, I should um, say that I wrote the uh, this book and the King book simultaneously. So this one, this sentence, gestures towards something that will become, which is the focus of that book. But to un- unpack it without without going there, um, what I'm trying to point to is that. Currently, where where we reflect aesthetically, rhapsodically, uh, and critically on blackness today, um, there is an ontology of blackness present. However, um, to draw that out, um, to shape it, and to present it as such simply isn't uh, a move that I, I think many many of us want to make at, at the moment. And so we are, we are at conflicting ends. On the one hand, we are using ontological language and arguments in order to present something that we are refusing to say is ontological. And so because ontology is in itself is in, is in a type of ruins when faced with something like racial particularism, in which we have to decide what does it mean to be to be black, to be white, to be this, to be that, if if in fact all of these meanings lead to one thing, which is oppression, racism, and um, the inhuman treatment of the other. And so, what what do we do? How do we how do we end that thought without flipping the script and simply prescribing something like uh, essentialism? If I'm going to reflect on the being of blackness or the blackness of being, et cetera, however you want to um, spin that spin that phrase, then I'm at least tacitly suggesting that there is something like an essence there, an ontology there. We have all sorts of problems open up. Is that a, what is blackness? Does it does it does it pertain to the entire diaspora to to all flowers is there an african-american ontology at work that is separate from these questions keep multiplying um and by the time we're finished asking them we realize that we're only finished because we had to draw a line somewhere but that we could just go on all day running in circles and so while i admire much of what um what we have today is uh, African-American theory or black theory. I'm also somewhat dismayed by uh, the move away from a, a much more materialist approach, a much more historicist approach, because it seems to reinscribe some of the very problems that we've been trying to dismantle. Um, and so we look across the landscape and see the so-called ruins of ontology because you can't fall back into ontology. You can't talk about ontology anymore without, without thinking about how it's implicated with racism. But on the other hand, to say anything seems to bring us back to that unless we move back to that, fall back on that sociological position that uh-huh. we stepped out of. Um, or started to step out of with Baldwin. And so what do we do? And there, therein lies the problem. Fantastic. It's really, really interesting. Um, so let me ask you about, um, 
about, uh, you know, your own thought on readers, you know, readers, they read the book, you know, I mentioned the hermeneutical situation, uh, previously, I mean, they, you know, people bring to books what they bring and they take away what they take away. But I'm wondering about you as an author, you know, what, you know, what would you say you as, as, a, as the author of this book want us to walk away with? And I mean that in terms of how do you want the reader's sensibility to be shaped or reshaped or in somehow uh, impacted by the book? So I think at the, at the end of the, the last page, I'd like the, the ideal reader at least to, to think to themselves, well, there's, there was much more going on here than I thought. Um, that is to say that some, an author who's been worked over as much as James Baldwin, that this is, this is new to me, and, but it's vital, and it will help me think about how I read Baldwin in the future. I don't necessarily need anything in Phenomenal Blackness to determine how one reads. I don't think that's possible. But I think, but I hope it's a part of the conversation in how we approach not just these individual figures, but the period in general and black power um, in general. But also, if the reader happens to be um, an academic or a car, how we start to think of um, what our own work and how we're framing our arguments. And what does it mean to be working in theory or philosophy and so on as as a type of artifact production of black life where where does this fit on that on that scale of am i am i reproducing an essentialist argument or am i critiquing it am i undermining um a racist aspect of western western metaphysical tradition or if I somehow reintroduced it, these are serious questions and hard yeah. questions, at least they were for me, but I felt they had to be asked. Ultimately, this project began a long, long time ago when I started, tried to think of, um, it began with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Jr.'s um, letter from a Birmingham jail, which of course is not in this particular text, but comes later. Um, and how violence and, and nonviolence, what they what they might how I might be able to think about them if I thought about Benjamin's critique of violence alongside. What would this mm -hmm. do? And then I started to realize that when when you when you do when you start to, when I you start to do the types of things that I want to do, which is read these authors together if if authorized to do so by contextual history or the biography and so on mm -hmm. by history let's say what happens when you import or export or put alongside benjamin and martin luther king jr does something unintended happen yeah what what happens when you read uh the african-american literary tradition as a heideggerian or through heidegger uh, Does something very unwanted come in? This, this, do we have an unwanted guest, so to speak, a ghost <laughs> that now enters the text and starts to do some of the things um, we never really wanted to have happen? The answer was, un was yes. Uh -huh. I, I think actually we do import the entire archive that Heidegger brings with him his, his baggage when he comes to stay. And uh, uh, unless we start to interrogate that rigorously, we can still use these figures, still read these traditions together. Mm -hmm. We have to be very careful about how that happens. And it yeah. cannot simply sound good. It has to mm -hmm. work, and it has to work ethically. Um, and that's what I hope a reader might come away thinking, wanting to do, and maybe um, more empowered to do. Yeah, at the end of that book. Well, I think you know, as a as a as a theorist and philosopher reading the book, I think that is absolutely the the effect of this book and the concluding uh, pages. I think really drive that home so much. 
But let me turn that question then around to you. I mean, you've spoken even just now a little bit to it, but um, how do you walk away from this book? You've mentioned this, you know, this uh, new project, a similar project forthcoming that you wrote at the same time on King Jr. But, you know, in terms of your own sensibilities, how is the book put, you know, what has the book put in motion for you in terms of what comes next? And I partly mean that in terms of, you know, what's your next project? Of course, everybody always wants to know, but just in terms of, you know, what, what it meant, because you did shift decades ahead, you know, so it's a different sensibility that you engaged in, as a scholar. And so I wonder about how your own sensibilities were transformed by, uh, by this book and, and how they're in the King book and things to come. Well, it actually sharpened my, my attention, my attentiveness to theology um, in, in this discourse, because often, um, and hopefully this again will be a conclude, one of the conclusions I draw in the later book, but ultimately to, to avoid philosophical essentialism or ontological essentialism, there, there's a fallback into a theological approach that we see mm -hmm. in Martin Luther King Jr.'s thought that um, almost uh, almost ironically enables a much more um, pragmatic activist approach uh, and a translation of these these ideas into into action that um, would have been otherwise either impossible or utterly disingenuous had they stayed completely within a philosophical register. Um, and so that, that I started to wonder, where does that come from? And it turns out to be the root of the thought to begin with. And that's why I've moved back, back in time for the next, for the project that I'm working on right now, in order to see how senses of, uh, of election, of chosenness, of race, uh, in mm -hmm. law and philosophy, uh, in the, 19th century primarily start to shape these types of theological responses that um, we start to see that seek somehow to to talk about race but to do so outside of absolute terms where it's much more contingent in nature but grounded in something that is uh, other than nature or um, or even a type of intentional supreme being with King, it's love, right? This is exactly where we want to end. <laughs> yeah. If we uh, if we have to have some type of final ground uh, for in order to to undo race in its entirety, that's what it has to be. If there's an inevitability to to that thought that I have been trying to trace uh, in my most recent work. Well, I can't wait to read this uh, new project, uh, the King book, but this this turn to the 19th century. Um, this is that's going to it would be another chapter. I mean, all of your books are extremely uh, unique contributions, right? Open up new horizons of thought. But that return to the 19th century and to the theological, um, certainly for somebody like me, and there are lots of us out there, <laughs> hopefully, um, this is a, a a book I can't wait to see. So I look forward to, you know, finding ways to catch sight and catch glimpses of it as you go along. But I really appreciate you making the time uh, to talk about phenomenal blackness and about your work generally today. It's uh, this has been uh, extremely interesting. I really mean it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, take care. You too.